kick off episode 353 of Monster Kid Radio with the song Cryptomatic. It is from the Seattle surf band, the Delstroyers. It's from their album that was released in December of last year, Diabolical. It's got 13 tracks, and it's awesome. Check it out. When you're done listening to the podcast, devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook. Welcome to the show. I'm thrilled to talk about a Frankenstein movie. No, this is not part of the year of Frankenstein, although I'm sure it'll come up at some point later this year. Instead, we're just going to do what we do and talk about a classic or maybe not so classic movie. This time around, we're talking about 1965's Frankenstein meets the space monster. And we're going to be talking with a longtime friend of the show, author extraordinaire, Dwight Kemper. It's going to be a good time. Um, if I can change gears, though, I want to mention something that's not really a good time for me. Those of you who follow me on Facebook uh, may have already seen this. And if you listen to or are involved in some writing podcasts, you may have heard this as well. Um, earlier this week, uh, we lost somebody, somebody who's actually been on the show. Back on episode 258, I was joined by Justin McCumber, and we talked about the movie Dracula and a number of other things. And it was a really good conversation, and I always wanted to have him back on. I hadn't been talking to him about it, though, because he'd been dealing with a number of health issues over the past several months, if not years. And it's unfortunate because he's a good guy. He's a good writer, and he's an enthusiastic supporter of all types of creative folk. Um, after uh, a transplant thing didn't work out. He was uh, on a ventilator for quite some time, was in the ICU, and unfortunately, Justin McCumber passed earlier this week. And, you know, I'm, I'm just going to say a couple of things here. I'm not trying to uh, bring this too down, but I just want to say on a personal level that Justin McCumber inspired me in a number of different ways. He's probably the guy that finally got me to using the Oxford comma on a regular basis. I really kind of fought it for a long time, but uh, he made it make sense for me. Um, so I appreciate that. But also Justin was very open about a lot of his health issues and that included his mental health issues. And he talked openly on Facebook about his depression and his talking about that online was part of what helped me take the steps I needed to start treating my own depression. And for that, I'm forever going to be grateful for him. Now, I did tell him that. And in typical Justin fashion, he was very humble. He seemed a little awkward about it, and, and I let it drop. But I wanted him to know that I appreciated how much he did for me by helping me get to that point or being part of the catalyst there. I have not gone back to listen to the old episode that he was on. I've been thinking about it just to kind of remind myself of Justin and a different way because a lot of people have been talking about him as a writer or as a podcaster. I don't know if as many people knew how big of a monster kid he was as well. So Justin, thank you for everything that you did for the podcasting community, the writing community, and for me. Rest in peace, man. Okay, let's get back to what we do here on Monster Kid Radio, and that's talking about monster movies and hearing from other monster kids. We've got some feedback this week. Hey, Derek. How you doing? Uh, my name is Eric. I've been listening to you for about a year. A wonderful podcast. Easily my favorite of the few that I listen to. Just wanted to leave a message. First, about episode 351, about Curse of the Crimson Altar. Um, uh, thank you for that wonderful ep episode. Uh, you and Stephen, you know, really gave some great elaboration about the movie. Um, I myself have not seen it yet, but I intend to. I've heard a lot about it, 
and you guys just got me all pumped and ready, and I, I'm finally ordering it, so thank you. Um, second, um, I just wanted to share with you and all the other listeners out there, the, our fellow Monster Kids, that um, this is the year of Frankenstein, the uh, 200th anniversary of uh, Mary Shelley's novel. There's a, uh, a wonderful book that um, I highly recommend for all fans of the, of the novel, and any, I think any Monster Kids should own. It's it's the the novel of Frankenstein by Mary Shelley, an annotated version. It came out last year, 2017, and it's called the New Annotated Frankenstein, and it's edited by um, Leslie Klinger. That's K L I N G E R. Leslie Klinger. He's um, edited or done many great annotations. He's done a Lovecraft one, a Sherlock Holmes one. I think he did the Dracula one as well. But this book is just, it's fantastic. I highly recommend it. There's only so many available, so check Amazon, check Barnes & Noble, check just to Google it. It's very thorough on the background of the story, and also there's a lot about the movies as well, particularly the Universal Monster films and the Hammer Horror films. Uh, the cover of the book is actually, I think it's a picture of uh, Glenn Strange. So it's really just a wonderful book. I think if there's one version of Mary Shelley's novel, I think this is it. Another one is also... Artist Grizz Grimley, I'm sure some monster kids know who he is. He's an artist. You can go on his website, madcreator.com. And he has the entire novel, and he's illustrated himself in his wacky style. Um, it's, only, it's very affordable. It's only like 25 bucks hardcover. Beautiful book. So um, just throwing those out there since the year of Frankenstein, and um, two great books to, to pick up and to read in a commemoration of one of our favorite monsters. So thank you, Derek. Keep up the good work. And uh, – Take care. That's awesome. I love hearing from the listeners. I mean, feedback is one of the things that us podcasters thrive on. So thank you for calling in and thank you for discovering the show and, and checking it out. Thank you for discovering the show. That's not quite, well, you know what I mean. Thank you for checking out the show. As a podcaster, I think I'm contractually obligated with all the podcasters out there to say, if you go back and listen to the older episodes, eh, I've gotten better since then. I think that's something that all podcasters have to say uh, whenever somebody says they're checking out the back catalog. Uh, I, I do hope you enjoy it because the back catalog is awesome with all sorts of amazing guests that have been part of the Monster Kid Radio. I'm going to say legacy at this point because we're over three years old. I can say that, right? Anyway, thank you for calling in these recommendations. I knew about Leslie Klinger because he did do the Lovecraft book and you know, as a Lovecraft guy and somebody who you know, does the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival every year and all that. You know, I was aware of him, and I also was aware of the Dracula edition that he did, but I didn't know that he also did a Frankenstein annotated edition. Now, I did just hop onto Amazon to check it out, and it looks like you can pick it up as a hardcover for less than $20. If you have a Kindle, you can get an ebook version of it for $2.75. Tell you what, I'm going to make sure there's a link to this in the show notes. I've not read this, obviously. I wasn't aware of it, so it's going to make its way to the top of my to-read list, especially this year, since it is the year of Frankenstein here on Monster Kid Radio. I also wasn't really aware of this book that Gris Grimley did. I need to check that out as well. And I'll make sure there's a link to his website in the show notes so people can check that out. Looks like he can pick up a lot of amazing books featuring his artwork. Eric, thank you for joining us here on Monster Kid Radio and being one of the listeners, one of the monster kids out there. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I also have some feedback that I received through Facebook. 
This message came from Chris C. Hey, Derek, just got done listening to episode 352, and I just wanted to say it was another fantastic and fun episode. I was particularly giddy about Santo making the list as a premier vampire hunter. I always thought Santo got a bit of a bad rep as not being as skilled of a worker as Blue Demon, but I personally find Santo's earlier work to be quite exciting. He might not have always been the smoothest in the ring, but he excelled at playing the babyface in peril and made exciting comebacks. And not to mention he had a snug-looking camel clutch that Rusev would probably be envious of. <laughs> also, um, see, I love it when my love of professional wrestling kind of slips into Monster Kid Radio, so thank you for the Rusev reference, and happy Rusev Day to you, sir. Anyway, continuing with his message. Also, comparing Blue Demon to Batman was spot on. Blue Demon always did have a bit more of a mysterious aura about him. I always pictured Santo being a masked Joe Namath-Hulk Hogan hybrid, while Demon came off like the type of guy that would spend his downtime brooding in his own personal bat cave, or demon cave, listening to vinyl records of some underground band that isn't mainstream enough for Santo. All right, completely switching gears here. I was wondering if you've ever checked out Vincent Price's early radio work, in particular his work as The Saint. It's certainly outside of the MKR wheelhouse, but still might be of interest to Monster Kids to hear Price solving mysteries from the golden age of radio. Well, until next time, keep up the good work, and looking forward to Lucho de Mayo. 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 Lucho de Mayo. Looking forward to... <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Looking forward to May, I'm sure. But yeah, I'm looking forward to May too. Okay. Uh, Santel, you know, I really hope I didn't come across, and, and Frank wasn't coming across like we were dissing Santo. That, that's far from the case. Uh, I think Santo is amazing and so prolific. So many movies. There's a reason why he made so many and he became synonymous with the Luchador films. I just happen to prefer Blue Demon a little bit. But see, and this is just me. I've always been drawn to the more not so mainstream characters in so many pieces of media, whether it's comic books. You know, I've always been drawn to characters like the Jack of Hearts over at Marvel, who's never had his own book, had a limited series once, and that was about it. But that's my favorite Marvel character of all time. Yeah, kind of off off the wall, kind of not really mainstream. When it comes to uh, movies and wrestlers and music, you know, I've never been the mainstream guy. And I think... That just carried over to my love of the luchadors. And Blue Demon's great. I like Blue Demon. I like El Santo a lot. Momoscaris is my guy. I mean, he's the one that I really enjoy the most. And I think partly because he's still around and I've seen him in more recent fare. Uh, he's still active. I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's it. Maybe there's fewer movies with him. That's what's kind of drawn my attention to him. And it lets me fill in the blanks a little bit more instead of having so much Santo and Blue Demon out there. As far as the saint goes, um, you know, outside of the MKR wheelhouse, it's Vincent Price. Vincent Price is always going to have a home here on Monster Kid Radio. I have not checked out any of his work as the saint. I have listened to a lot of The Price of Fear, which was the anthology show that he did, which is awesome. <laughs> if people haven't listened to The Price of Fear, it's a great radio show. But The Saint, I haven't checked out. I really need to. So I'll add that to my list of things that I need to listen to because I don't have enough, clearly. Um, thank you for writing in, man. And I, too, am looking forward to May. All right, we have another message. This is from listener Peter F. It comes from Facebook as well. And he says, I love the podcast. You should host a monster movie show on YouTube. You could do an intro to a monster movie, a break halfway through the movie, and at the end. Your knowledge of monster movies is very impressive. I think you could get a lot of people to watch. Take care. Okay, Peter. Um, 
There are many times when I think it would be a blast to be a horror host. There's been a couple of things that have held me back, and I'm trying real hard to make 2018 the year that I get over some of these things that I've let hold me back. And one of those is that there's a reason why I do audio. Um, <laughs> that is, I, I'm not going to say I have a face for radio, but I typically don't do a lot of uh, video stuff in front of the camera, uh, just you know, insecurity stuff, whatever. And I've always kind of struggled with the idea. Most horror hosts have a persona. And if I were to do it, I don't know if I'd want to do that. I think I'd just want to be myself. I mean, years ago when I was producing a different podcast, I used a different name and it wasn't really a different character, but I was a different name anyway. And and I just want to use my own name. You know what I mean? So that's one of the reasons why I've hesitated and the time commitment, of course, that sort of thing. That said, I am doing some YouTube this year. I am going to launch a YouTube channel. Well, I already have a YouTube channel, but I'm going to do like a soft relaunch, I guess. You can expect sometime in February a YouTube series, basically, Monster Kid Radio on YouTube is what it's going to be called. And I'm going to be doing regular episodes there. I don't know if it'll be every week or every other week, but I've already got one in the can and ready to go. I've got notes written up for two or three other episodes. They're going to be short episodes, 10, 15 minutes long tops. But it's going to be a way to get Monster Kid Radio into the YouTubeosphere. Tubosphere? The YouTuber. It's going to get me on YouTube. I'm also going to be doing some other non-Monster Kid Radio specific things on YouTube. Of course, anything I do is going to have that Monster Kid flavor because that's who I am. And I wouldn't be true to myself and true to my videos if it wasn't there. So stay tuned for that as well. Of course, I'll announce it here on the show. There is the Monster Kid Radio YouTube channel right now that's mostly a bunch of trailers. A quick little Christmas greeting that I did in December of last year and a few other things. So go ahead and get out there and subscribe to that now because it's coming. It it really is. All right, another message. This comes from a comment that Charles K. left. This is in regards to last week's episode. For what it's worth, I would absolutely be down for an MKR-produced audio adaptation of Presumption or The Fate of Frankenstein. And Charles wasn't the only person who sent me similar messages. I think Dominique said something on Facebook. I also received some emails. There have been a few other comments here and there about how much they enjoyed having those bits of dialogue recreated, I guess, monologue style on the show when I had Joshua Kennedy and Jeff Owens reading from the play Presumption or the Fate of Frankenstein. I had a blast with that. And getting into audio dramas is something that I've been looking to get into this year as well. And Presumption or the Fate of Frankenstein is in the public domain. (laughs) And it's Frankenstein for crying out loud. So it's something I'm considering. Stay tuned. I think I'm caught up on feedback, but if you have anything that you want to talk about here on the show, please send me an email at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. If you're a Facebook user, you can always send me a message there or leave a comment on a post over there and, you know, I'll read it here on the show as well. Or you can call and leave a voicemail like Eric did and call 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. And Eric, by the way, I'd love to hear what you thought of Curse of the Crimson Altar when you get a chance to watch it. So feel free to call back and let me know whether or not we steered you in the right direction toward a good movie. All right, let's go ahead and get into the meat, the bulk of this week's episode. We've got Dwight Kemper, author, murder mysterian, monster kid extraordinaire, coming up right after this. I am Dracula. 
a moment ago, I stumbled upon a most amazing phenomenon. Something so incredible, I mistrust my own judgment. Look. Dracula. The very mention of the name brings to mind things so evil, so fantastic, so degrading. You wonder if it isn't all a dream, a nightmare. Rats. 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 Thousands. Millions of them. But no, this is no dream. This is Dracula. The original terrifying story of a maniac and a man who lived after death, lived on human blood, took the form of a vampire bat, and lured innocent girls to a fate truly worse than death. Dracula? Oh, what, what's he done to you, dear? Tell me. He came to me. He opened a thing in his arms, and he made me drink. It's 1966. The space race is on. The Cold War is heating up. And giant monsters are destroying Japan. Dai Kaiju Attack. The serialized giant monster story. Presented free every week on DaikaijuAttack.com and SDSullivan.com. Become a member of the Daikaiju Attack group on Facebook. Join the action today. It is safe to state that the grandchildren of some of the people in this theater will not be born on Earth. come from the bowels of hell, a transformed race of walking dead, zombies guided by a master plan for complete domination of the earth. Plan 9 from outer space. Starring the most frightmarish cast ever, Bella Lugosi, the seductive vampira, and Thor Johnson as the walking dead. Turn off your electro gun! No! No! Stop him, Dennis! I can't get it! It's jammed! Stop him, you fool! Bullets bounce off their bodies. Rockets, missiles, jets cannot stop their death ships. What earthly power can stop this terror? For a glimpse of things to come, see this blast of screen suspense. For it could be happening right now.
I am Dracula, and I bid you welcome to the podcast devoted to the classic, and sometimes not so classic, genre cinema of yesteryear. And I offer you this warning. Sometimes Derek and his guests get excited, and they may spoil a movie or two. You know how excited monster kids can get sometimes. If Monster Kid Radio spoils a movie for you, do not come whining to me. I cannot stand whines. Monster Kids, I want to welcome back to the show a man who, if I ever found a dead body in a room, I hope this guy is the guy who put it there. Dwight Kemper, welcome back to Monster Kid Radio. You're welcome, and more than likely it would be made of latex, but not necessarily. Yeah, well, you know, I, I wasn't, yeah, I was just going to leave that hanging there. But no, Dwight, you do a lot of murder mystery, live murder mystery. Uh, are, are they performances? What, what do you consider them? You know, if you're really high society, I suppose you'd look at it as performance art. But really, it's just me trying to make a living. <laughs> but uh, Hey, there you go. Uh, basically, they're interactive murder mysteries where I create a crime scene and I give parts to uh audience members who then become suspects, other audience members become CSI investigators, and other audience members bag and tag the body and put it on a stretcher and, and all that. It's a, it's, a, it's a full murder mystery experience. And sometimes I actually write shows specific to a location. And if it's a private party, I get their actual biographies and their relationships to one another, and I make them more sinister than they probably are. So, that's, <laughs> so yeah. Um, so basically, I make my living killing fake people. <laughs> so. There you go. See, I wanted to give some context for what I said there at the very beginning, just just in case you know, just people didn't understand. So, just all right, awesome. How you doing, man? How is the new year treating you? Do we really want to go into this? <laughs> Well, okay. Well, we don't have to, well, well, you know. Why not? It's, 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 it's humorous. It's, it's humorously awful. Um, but, oh no! Okay, to start with, I, I bought a new van, which is not a new van. It's actually the same make and year as my old van, but was allegedly in better condition with a new radiator and new wiring and things like that. Well. Last Saturday, when I was going to a client, because I'm also a patient care aide, so at 8 o'clock in the morning, I have to help the guy in a wheelchair get ready for the day, my engine overheated and my new radiator blew. And if it wasn't for the help of somebody who was working at this electronics firm who I, whose parking lot I pulled into because my engine was going, I would probably have been stranded. So he actually, first of all, he invited me in because it was warm because it was like below 35 degrees below zero. Oh. And then he offered to drive me to a uh, gas station to buy some more uh, radiator fluid. So I filled it up and it worked for me to get to the other places. And then I took it to the service station to <laughs> spend another $745 on a new, new radiator. Oh. And now this Friday... As I'm performing errands for a client, uh, suddenly my windshield washer fluid motor started working on its own as though somehow possessed and is still doing that to right now. So now I have another appointment to have them come in and go down and have them look at it. And, and on top of that, this is my first three-day weekend in ever so long. So naturally, I'll be spending some of it at a repair shop waiting room 
waiting for the bad news as to what it's going to cost to fix this, or they can just pull the fuse and order to deal with it. Oh. So, yeah, it's, it's been just that kind of thing. So what I hear while you're relaying all these things that have happened to you that have cost money is that people need to buy your books. That's what I'm hearing. Exactly. Buy my books. Support your, <laughs> support your author because I need, I need money. <laughs> so, yeah, buy my books. Please. Buy That's what book. I'm hearing. Who frame, <laughs> yeah. Who frame Boris Karloff, Bela Lugosi in the House of Doom, and the Vampire's Tomb Mystery, both audiobook form by Circular Spheres Productions, and now the new Midnight Marquee version with book cover that I myself painted. I love that trade dressing a lot more than the other publishers. I mean, that, the version that I have is from the, the other publisher, but the cover now for the Midnight Marquee release is so much more in line with the previous two books. It's just, it's Midnight Marquee publishing for all three of them. Uh, and, and I just, I love that cover. And I mean, I, I'm thinking about adding it to my bookshelf, even though I already got the book, you know, I want thinking about maybe picking it up again. With oh, the please new, yeah, do. please do add it to your bookshelf. Please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, um, no pressure here. Yeah, yeah. No, um, the cover was actually inspired by the title card to Plan 9 from Outer Space, which seemed appropriate since it actually takes place during the making of Plan 9 from Outer Space. So I simply took the title card and put my own touches to it and added Bill Lugosi's, uh, or should I say Armand Tesla's shadow in there, and then you have the title. And I even used the uh, credits for uh, Plan 9 from Outer Space, which was written produced and directed by Edward D. Root Jr. So I simply sort of uh, written, illustrated, and produced by, by Dwight Kemper. So yes, I, I did my own cover. This is actually the first one that I've illustrated both inside and outside. Well, we'll make sure there's links to all this. Obviously, you know, we try to promote all of our guests and our friends. And I mean, I like the books. I, I was a fan before I was a friend. So I'll just say that, you know, they get the Monster Kid Radio seal of approval from me. Well, thank you. I also appreciate you putting me on your Christmas list. Oh, thing. definitely, so. man. Definitely. So, despite all this happening, Dwight made time yeah. to watch a movie to, to, so we could talk about it here on the show. Before we get to that, though, Dwight, how do you feel about playing another round of the Classic Five? I know it's been a little while since Monster Batch and all that, but you want to do it? I was actually hoping you would ask Excellent. me because I would love to do another round of, neck of Classic Five. All right. So, for listeners who don't know or new listeners, the Classic Five is a game we play. I've got a deck of cards here. Give it a good shuffle. Don't know if you can hear that or not. Uh, anyway, we got five cards I'm going to draw. They're all about classic monster movies, this or that, yes or no style questions. There are no wrong answers. It's all about giving our listeners an opportunity to learn a little bit more about our guests. Are you ready to play the classic five, Dwight? Yes, I am. And I feel like I'm in Dr. Terror's House of Horrors on that, you know, on that train car. And you're, you're <laughs> well, I don't have the eyebrows, so... Yeah, I think we're okay. <laughs> oh, no, no. I don't think anybody's I got do. those. Oh, I have to trim them. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I've got five different categories as well. Uh, there is the, the core deck, the basic deck. There is a um, kaiju uh, series, a hammer series, a universal series, and then what I call a deep cut, which really gets into the classic move, monster movie nerdery that we love around here. The first card on top, it is a red card. Red means hammer. So here's the hammer card question for you. Dwight, card number one, what is your favorite hammer vampire film not featuring Christopher Lee? Who? Um, I think it, I'm trying to remember the actual title. I think it's the Vampire Lovers. Vampire Lovers? Yes, The Vampire Lovers, only because they tried so hard to be naughty with it and didn't quite 
make it. <laughs> I mean, there was there was some nudity in it, but uh, it did have Peter Cushing in it briefly. Mm-hmm. And also, you've got Ingrid Pitt, who's who's trying to seduce. I've, I've forgotten her name, but she was also in Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell as uh, as the angel. I can't remember her name. Is that right uh, Madeline? Smith. Madeline Smith. Yeah. Madeline. Mm-hmm. Smith. Right. Right. Uh, Madeline Smith, who apparently to get herself ready for this part was was told that she needed to be more buxom so she said i can eat a lot of yogurt so <laughs> madeline smith has the, has the body that yogurt made okay so we can thank yogurt for madeline smith's bust line hark a film of tender love and the screams of vampire death now there's a powerful motion picture that rips at your emotions the vampire lovers it brings you beautiful love and vampire evil, and it'll drive your mind through a thousand terror-filled moments. You'll hear whispers of warm desire become shrieks of chilling death. You'll taste the deadly passion of the vampire lovers and become a slave of the damned. You'll discover the sweet embrace and the deadly kiss of blood nymphs who refuse to die. The vampire lovers. It's in color. And it had to be rated R. Under 17 must be accompanied by a parent or adult guardian. Don't miss The Vampire Lovers. There, there was also another one. I, I can't remember. It was along the same line because it was along with, the, with I think, the Karnstein mm-hmm. line. And the, the only reason that I like that one is because it has this stupid song in it called Strange Love. Ooh. And as you hear, Strange Love... This beautiful blonde—I forgot—I've forgotten her name—but she is in such ecstasy that her eyes are actually crossing, and it looks so funny. Um, <laughs> and not only that, but it also has one of my favorite lines in any Hammer film that I still refer to today, because anytime anybody died in this film, there was this guy who would go, "It was a heart attack." <laughs> so, so every time somebody died, it was a heart attack. So. So yes, those are my two. Those are my two picks. But definitely, the Vampire Lovers first of all. So Vampire Lovers, uh, and then there were three of them. There were Vampire Lovers, uh, Lust for a Vampire, which is the the one with the song. That's the one, Lust for a Vampire. Yeah. Yes, the one with Strange Love, is because I don't know who came up with that idea <laughs> with the song, but it was just terrible. It's it's <laughs> but yeah funny. Yeah, yeah, and and Newt Stensgard was the uh, vampire, or was the woman you're talking about that would right. In fact. Um, the the artist best known for doing uh, Batman the Animated Series, he he actually did a really sexy cartoon of her. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, so it was for a cover of Little Shop of Horrors, wasn't it? Right. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Bruce Tim was the uh, artist Tim. on that. Yeah. 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 All right, so uh, card number two. Now, this comes from the Black series, which is the the deep cut. What is your favorite Vincent Price Roger Corman film? Oh. That would have to be Tales of Terror because I saw that in the movies and as I related mm. before, I screamed my full head off. Every drop of blood feels the freezing paralysis of fear, almost stopping your heart as Edgar Allan Poe unfolds his Tales of Terror. You will meet the master of the mansion who loved and protected his wife with the strength of a supernatural love even beyond life itself. I am in command here. You will do as I say. I shall take what I desire. Your body and your soul if I demand it. (laughs) 
then you'll enjoy the Black Cat's sardonically humorous tale. It all started at the Vintners' convention, where the lover of wine met the professional wine taster and introduced him to his wife, a darling who delighted in dalliance. What kind of a man are you anyway? Make love to my wife and doesn't even talk to me. You're insane. That may be, but very clever. Help! 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 In this monstrous mausoleum of the living, you will witness fury far worse than a woman scorned. The fury of a dead woman's jealousy. It was so bad, because uh, it started out with the first one, but with each one you would hear this heartbeat and you would either see like blood drops or cat's feet or something like that. The, the kid sitting next to me had my son to me. He said, oh God, not another one. <laughs> so we, and, and I seem to recall that I was like either in the front row or the next to front row because my memory of, of the scene where Valdemar is melting is like a thousand feet wide and into this weird angle. So uh, if you can imagine seeing all that that close to the screen, it was a truly terrifying experience, and I just loved it. So yes, that would be my, my favorite uh, Roger Coleman one. My second favorite would uh, be Comedy of Terrors. Oh, yeah, that one's good too. All right, card number three. Oh, gosh. This is also uh, from the Black series. Mm-hmm. Which movie do you prefer more, Dr. Goldfoot and the Bikini Machine or Dr. Goldfoot and the Girl Bombs? Uh, the first one. The Girl Bombs wasn't quite as good, and the Bikini Machine was a lot more meta in some ways, and it was also smarter in its writing. This is Vincent Price, I mean Dr. Goldfoot, with plans to possess most of the money in the world. Frankie Avalon knows it. Dwayne Hickman finds out about it. Susan Hart is an innocent, innocent tool of the plan. Hello, darling. Jack Mullaney helped make the plan. (laughs) And special guest star Fred Clark just doesn't believe it. You're nuts! All right, follow me. These lush bikini babes are built, uh, I mean made, uh, produced to perform. And they have the knack of doing what they're built to do. She walks. She talks. Come here, tiger. She makes love. Did you miss me, precious? Sex has never been funnier. She isn't human. But she is gorgeous. Mr. Armstrong, you're married to a robot. (laughs) Dr. Goldfoot is a dangerous man, but he does have his lighter moments. All right. Shut up. Now, if I'm not mistaken, Vincent Price said that it was originally written to be a musical. And they... And they cut all the music out of it. 
So it would have been huh. interesting to it would have been interesting to see what kind of a musical Dr. Goldfoot and the Bikini Machine would have been. But yeah, I I I thought that was a much better film and probably one of the crowning achievements of American International Pictures. <laughs> <laughs> Apart from taking foreign science fiction films and sticking Mamie Van Doren in them. <laughs> so. Well, that's that's important too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, Dr. Goldfoot and the Girl Bombs was directed by Mario Bava, but it's, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. (laughs) It was an excuse for Vincent Price to go to Italy, basically, is, is what, what that movie was, uh, and they have somebody else pay for it. So, you know? (laughs) Hey, got a vacation out of it. Um, I can't argue with that. All right, here we go. Card number four. Oh, it's a universal card. Mm Mm-hmm. Which Earl C. Kenton film do you prefer, House of Frankenstein or House of Dracula? Oh, definitely House of Frankenstein, because basically House of Dracula lifted most of the dialogue from House of Frankenstein. Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> in House of Frankenstein, Boris Karloff says, The Undying Monster, the triumphant climax of Frankenstein's genius. And then in House of Dracula, the other scientist is going, the Undying Monster, the triumphant climax of Frankenstein's genius. <laughs> and on top of that, they use so much stock footage of other actors playing Frankenstein's monster that if you really wanted to play a trivia question, who played the monster in House of uh, Dracula, you could say everybody <laughs> because there's... Pretty much, right? Yeah, there's not only Glenn Strange, who is incredibly underused, but also Boris Karloff. There was even, when the place was burning down, there was Lon Chaney Jr. I mean, they used everybody except Bela Lugosi, basically. So uh, Pretty much. Yeah, so definitely House of Frankenstein was a uh, much superior film and you also had Elena Verdugo as as a gypsy girl and J. Carol Nash as Daniel the Hunchback, and so yeah, I would definitely say that uh, that was a far superior version. I'm going to repay you for betraying me. I'm going to give that brain of yours a new home in the skull of the Frankenstein monster. The uh, juggler vein is severed. Not cut, but torn apart as though by powerful teeth. A werewolf. Last night I killed a man. I didn't know what you were doing. But I did. I wanted to kill. I think they're after Dracula. Okay, final card, final question. This is also from the Universal Deck. Dwight Fry as Fritz or Dwight Fry as Renfield? Oh. Right? (laughs) I, you know, being a Frankenstein fan, as I am, I think he actually gave the more nuance, if you can call it that, a nuanced performance as Fritz. Because, um, I mean, it's true that as Renfield, he started out as a fairly normal person and then became this lunatic he just did some excellent little comic touches as fritz like saying that he'll get the doctor and then he goes up the stairs and he stops to pull his sock up and then goes up the stairs you know i mean just little little things like that that he was doing um i actually enjoyed that performance more and it also seemed if you can call it that it seemed a little more natural the one in 
Dracula was a little more exaggerated and over the top. And I thought that he was actually doing a fairly good performance where he wasn't going quite over the top. And, you know, in fact, he was even a little bit better in Bride of Frankenstein when he was, uh, yeah, what say you, pal? If we do more like this, we let him hang it. <laughs> oh. Yeah. <laughs> it's alive. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. When this dead hand moves, the monster created by a man they called Mad is turned loose to strike terror into the hearts of men. <laughs> to shock women into uncontrolled hysteria. Elizabeth! To prey upon the innocence of children. This is the story you've heard about, talked about. The spine-tingling, blood-chilling story that stuns your emotions. Frankenstein. Don't touch that! Well, there we go. That is the classic five. How do you feel, Dwight? I feel great. I've also somehow, in a way, connect, connected your, uh, your project with uh, Presumption or the Fate of Frankenstein, because that's where the character of Fritz originated. Did you know that before? It was news to me when I discovered that. Were you aware of the play at all or, or what was in there? Yes, because about 15 years ago, there was a series of uh, uh, documentaries that they were doing on the Discovery Channel before you know, it became what it is now, where they showed Frankenstein as it was portrayed over the period of time, starting with the plays. And they actually did a couple of uh, reenactments of scenes Ooh. of that. Um, and one with uh, Fritz especially, uh, where he's talking directly to the audience and uh, saying, oh, I'm so frightened that my teeth are rattling in my head. Uh, that's the performance that allegedly Mary Shelley saw and actually enjoyed. Right. Where, where Dr. Frankenstein, well, Frankenstein is bemoaning, I have created a monster with the mind of an infant. You know, so. Yeah. And, and of course it has lines in it like, oh, the horror, the horror, the horror. You know, uh, <laughs> so very over the top, but um, that's 1800s play. Right. <laughs> Yeah, it was fascinating to me that when we, I discovered, stumbled across that for the... Uh, anyway, okay, moving on. Um, <laughs> that's not the Frankenstein we're talking about this week. The Frankenstein we're talking about this week uh, is a movie called Frankenstein Meets the Stock Footage from 1965. That's right, um, because it's like 40% stock footage of armies and, you know, it's a... Wow. Uh, yeah. I just watched it yesterday on YouTube, and I was fascinated with just how much stock footage was used to make it. I was just thinking of uh, Ed Wood where he's like, I could make a whole movie out of this stock footage. Well, apparently that's practically what they did with Frankenstein meets the space monster. Do your eyes dare witness total terror. Frankenstein meets a space monster. All recorders to fast. This 
the first time on the screen. America's missile might. Mobilized against annihilating invaders from outer space. We have come here to this planet for one purpose only, to acquire breeding stuff to repopulate our planet. See the kidnapping of the Earth Maidens for the love-starved slaves of the sterile planet. Very good. We have done well, Nadia. I am pleased, Princess. You are satisfied. I will be satisfied when we have enough more like her to commence phase three. See the terrifying invasion of the beach party. A United States astro-robot become a creature of death. For the first time, see Earth Horror versus Space Terror. Frankenstein meets the space monster in Futurama. So, I've seen the movie before. Uh, it's been a while, though, and I had forgotten how much stock footage this thing has and how many long sequences of people driving or riding, I guess, a Vespa, basically. Uh, just so much. Just As a matter of fact, I have a story about that because um, I, okay. was, I was invited as a... Uh, guest writer to a convention in Florida and they, they met me at the airport and I'm in this car and we're driving along and I'm looking at the stuff going by on the side of the roads and it kind of reminded me of that. And then in the back of the car, I started doing this. Fortunately, the people in the car knew what I was doing because they were also monster kids. So then we all started going. Yeah, what Dwight's referring to here, if you haven't seen the movie, there are these long stretches of people just driving or riding around town, even though aliens have landed and, and have made threats about stealing women. They're just driving around nice and leisurely. And there's this music playing in the background. That's, I mean, on its own, it's not awful, but it just doesn't seem to fit. <laughs> they, they, they show them driving and you know, the uh -huh. desperate music. Dun, 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 dun. And then, um, general Bowers says, how long before we get there? Uh, 20 minutes, uh, general. And then suddenly we cut back outside again. Dun, 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 yeah. Then we cut inside and, how are you doing, Miss Brand? Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> it's like, boy, are we filling time or what? <laughs> so. Right? Which, you know, for a movie that feels like it could have been two different stories being mashed together, mm. they really do spend a lot of time padding this thing out when really they had two, in my mind, they could have had two movies worth of story here. You know, the Frankenstein thing and then the monster, the space monster thing. I mean, they, they just kind of collide at the end for five minutes. Right now, just so we know, this movie is not just called Frankenstein meets the space monster. It's sometimes it's called operation San Juan. And oh, really? Yes. Uh, operation San Juan, which doesn't belie at all what this movie is about. Uh, right. And, 
and in England, a duel of the space monsters. So they were both considered space monsters, and no mention was made of uh, Frankenstein. I thought that was rather interesting that there... Now, also, what's interesting about this film... It was originally written as a comedy. You know, I, I stumbled across that too. Like I said, I'd seen the movie before, but I didn't really know a lot about it. So I, I went and did some research and discovered that. And suddenly a lot of the things that happen in this movie make sense. Mm -hmm. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves here, but let's, let's, we'll start out by my connection with this film in that I actually saw it in 1965 in my stepmother's movie theater. So during its original release. During its original release. I do not nice. recall you know, I do not recall a second feature. So I don't know if she had Curse of the Voodoo or not, because I just have no memory of that. I just know that I walked in the first time, I walked in the middle of it after the Astro robot had been shot and half of his face had been melted, and we'll discuss more about that in a minute. And this very nice, um, busty 15-year-old girl was sitting next to me and was very nice enough to bring me up to speed as to what was happening. Because she said, well, at the beginning of the movie, he was really kind of handsome, and now he looks like this. <laughs> so I also should make a correction, because uh, recently I was contacted by somebody who was actually part of that family. I discovered the rest of my family, with the exception of my stepbrother, are dead. And this woman. And she's on Facebook as Nancy Drew. And she told me that, and she actually tried to break it to me like it was going to break my heart. She said, Marge didn't actually own that movie theater. She was the manager of several movie theaters in the uh, Long Island area. And I thought to myself, well, okay, fine. But I still got to see movies for free. So, okay. <laughs> Plus, it's kind of impressive that she actually managed more than one movie theater. Yeah. But yeah, so it was in this particular movie theater that I saw on the big screen, Frankenstein meets the space monster. And uh, this film influenced me so much that during recess at lunchtime, I would take the aluminum foil from my peanut butter sandwich and stick it to half of my face and on the playground, wander around as though I were Frank Saunders <laughs> with all the other children just completely ignoring me because I, they thought I was an idiot anyway. So this did, this did nothing to change their opinion of me. In fact, when I, I, I even tried to make myself up as Frank Saunders, not really knowing how to do it with makeup. I had some red makeup and some flesh-colored stuff and tried to do the same thing. I didn't quite achieve the effect. I could do it now, but back then, not so much so. But at least I tried. To to be fair, do you think the filmmakers knew how to do the makeup though? For the, I'm just, you know, well, I'm not okay. trying to be snarky, but okay. you know, let's put this. Let's put it this way: if you really examine the makeup in Frankenstein meets the Space Monster, and I will say that, as I already intimated, one of the space aliens shoots Frank Saunders in the face. He's an, he's actually an astro robot, and we'll explain that in a moment so that half of his face is melted and if you look at it because there's a there's a close-up of it at one point and you realize that the uh makeup artist took the guts of a transistor radio and stuck it in the latex that he was doing and in that he also put the guts of a wristwatch and you can tell because 
close up, you can see the dial of the transistor radio with the numbers on it. So that I'm sure at some point, if they wanted to, they could have played something on it while he's wandering around in the desert. <laughs> so, um, well, I need to make this look electronic. Okay, here's a radio. <laughs> so, stuck it in his head. Um, <laughs> so, yes, it, 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 it's really quite interesting what they threw together to create this makeup. And it's obviously a half a mask, yeah, which doesn't really match with his lips. Because sometimes it matches and sometimes it doesn't, and and so forth. But I've I found it rather uh, it's it's sort of influenced me. <laughs> so I, uh, I I was very impressed with it as a child. Now I think I should point out the following. Mm-hmm. Um, there's false advertising here because there is no Frankenstein in it. <laughs> yeah, um, which is something a no, lot of the online critics. No. Uh, if I can, yeah. I'm sorry. I don't mean to talk on top of you. Uh, I I don't always do this because I, I like to go into these things kind of fresh. But after I watched the movie, I, I did go online and check out a few other reviews of the film to see if I can pick up any more information, you know, behind the scenes or whatever. And a lot of the online YouTubers have who have reviewed this are very upset that there's no Frankenstein in this. I'm like, well, you know, I mean, there's a... No, they do have a title drop in it, though, because at one point... Uh... Karen Grant, who's played by Nancy Marshall, says that means that he could become like a Frankenstein. <laughs> so, okay, well, I guess that makes it possible for him to be called Frankenstein. Thank you very much. Hey, there you go. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> so, we, we got the name in there. Yeah. Now, of course, first of all, they named the android Frank. Sure. <laughs> so, so I guess that sort of comes in there. They could have named him Frank and Stein. That would have probably worked out nice. Well, especially if it was going to be a comedy, right? Right. For all we know, perhaps that's what they did. I, I understand that there was a scene where this robot actually tap dances at one point, so that I've, I've missed that. <laughs> but what Frank is, uh, Jim Cameron, who's James Cameron, but that's how he's depicted in the, that's how what his title is in this movie is Jim Cameron. Well, they were wanted to save money by only putting three letters instead of five for his name, right? I'm, I'm guessing that's I have, I have no idea. Yes. This, and they also made and they also wanted to make it easy for him to remember his assistant's name by giving her his last name of Karen. There you go. And and Jim Karen plays, and I love this name, Doctor Adam Steele. Now, you would think that somebody named Dr. Adam Steele would be played by, well, your favorite actor. Agar. Yes, John Agar. You would think John Agar would play Dr. Adam Steele. But instead, we have Jim Cameron playing Dr. Adam Steele, who does a very good job, uh, by the way. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And uh, apparently, for the past 10 years, he has been designing this astro robot named Frank Saunders, to go into outer space. Now, we will remind the viewers or listeners out there that this is 1965. We did not go to the moon until 1969. However, Frank Saunders is set to go to Mars, which is a big jump from not having even gone to the moon yet to going to Mars. So, uh, and then decided that maybe a robot would be an easier thing to send to Mars rather than a person. And there's a, not a very big press conference cause there's only like four or five reporters there. Um, <laughs> but it, but it's just important enough that they would ask him questions and, you know, 
And uh, uh, Frank is played by Robert Riley, who apparently only appeared in one other movie and on television in The Defenders. And I don't know what happened to his career after that. I mean, it wasn't bad. I mean, considering what he had to do, spend half the time wandering around with a blank look on your face. But, uh, you know, he was charming enough. And, and then he goes, and during the press conference, uh, that, well, we haven't heard from you. And I've been covering this for quite some time. Well, I guess I'm the shy type. And then he freezes. And you hear this clicking noise in, in the background. And apparently something has gone wrong with his mechanism which I thought was kind of funny is you're going to put this thing in a rocket ship and he's going to get shaken all over the place. And he's just sitting, he's just standing there at a podium giving a press conference and he already malfunctions. So <laughs> good luck with that space flight. Yeah. Right. Um, right. And then they take him to the operating room and I said, well, he, Colonel uh, Saunders wasn't kidding. He really is shy. And then of course the general Bowers distracts everybody by saying, let's go to the officers club and get drunk. <laughs> 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 Drinks are on me. So anyway, uh, they they take uh, Frank to the uh, laboratory operating theater that they have there, and they uh, put him on the operating table. And all Jim Cameron has to do is peel back this rubber wig, <laughs> and there's no skull or protection or anything. There's just like this half a brain and the other half is made from radio parts. And, um, sure. and I can see what the problem is right there. He needs a skull. He, he's desperately in need of a skull. So then, and he says that the problem is the humidity in the atmosphere. And it's like, well, cause he doesn't have a skull. <laughs> yeah. Give him a skull and you won't have any problems with humidity. Maybe you missed that part of anatomy, but. It needs a skull. Now, they try to eat their cake and have it, too, which is, by the way, the correct way to say that phrase, uh, by um, <laughs> saying that he's, that he's made from, or he's, he's an ordinary man made of ordinary parts transplanted, except for his synthetic skin and his electronic uh, nerves, of course, so... So supposedly this thing was made from cadavers, which sort of makes him more like a Frankenstein. Maybe. I but, mean, technically. Uh, you know, technically, yes. But yeah. I mean, it would, would it have killed anybody to name him Dr. Adam Frankenstein? <laughs> so that at least we have a Frankenstein right? in the movie. Right. And, well, and, you know, uh, speaking of names, and some Frankenstein films and stories actually call the monster Adam. Right. So to have the doctor named Adam seemed a little odd to me as well. Right. So, you know, but, yeah, because yeah. it would have been much better if they had just simply named him Adam Frankenstein or Adam Frank. Adam Frank. That would have worked. You know, Colonel Adam, Adam Frank, Frank sounds great. Right. So there you see right now. Perfect. Let's right. Do it. <laughs> That's right. We haven't even gotten to the aliens yet because the aliens are the, the most fun thing about this whole uh uh, Which is what put me off on the movie, to be honest, at the very beginning. The first time I saw this, I fought it because I thought that bargain basement John Lovett's looking Martian just there was something about him that, I, <laughs> again, I know I'm sounding more snarky than normal. You mean Luke Kukel? Um Yeah, there was just something about the way he looked that was very oh, I creepy love and it yeah. wigged me. Oh, I love him now. 
But when I first started seeing things about this movie, I was just like, ah. But no, I'm glad I watched it because he's great. Oh, no, I love him. He's, but I mean, when he's looking at the bikini girls and he's just looking like, oh, yeah. <laughs> he just looks so slimy. Oh. <laughs> but my favorite thing. They all do, but he is the slimiest. Yeah, yeah they all look just like, Ugh. you know what I mean? Crispin Glover's dad is in this and he's looking creepy. But uh, Lou Cattell, just, he's just, oh, yeah. No, no. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> By the way, uh, Bruce Glover, whom you are referring to, not only plays one of the Martians, but allegedly he is also in the monster suit. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yes. He's one of the Martians who uh, always checks out the women's behinds when he's standing behind them, which, <laughs> yeah, yep. creepy. Yeah. Anyway, what, you were going to say something about Luke Cattell. <laughs> okay, well, uh, what I love about Luke Cattell, and apparently the filmmakers did too, because they show this scene twice. So not only do they use stock footage from other movies, they use their own stock footage. Yes. <laughs> they're, they're shooting a missile. Uh, he, he's going to shoot it down. So, he, so he, he has this very stern look and he goes, focus full force field at zero nine zero degrees range 700. And now maximum energy. <laughs> And they do that twice. <laughs> they, they do it. They do it once for the missile, and they do it once when they're shooting down uh, Frank Saunders' rocket. So they, they mm -hmm. must have thought this is a great show. We're going to put that in there again. <laughs> so now, along with Doctor Nadir, is also uh, Princess Marcuzan, who, by the way, is not called Princess Marcuzan anywhere in the film you only know this if you read the end credits but what's really amazing about this princess is the woman who is playing her because she is played by marilyn hanald who has a long and varied career as a model as a showgirl and as an actress and she has been in other b movies she was a uh, one of the contestants in the beauty pageant in uh, the head that would not die or the brain that would not die, depending on whether you saw the opening or closing credits. <laughs> and if you're a, if you're a, a pinup fan of artist, uh, Gil Evgren, she actually modeled for flying high, which is this sexy witch for Halloween. And she married. Well, she married a millionaire. She moved to Salt Lake city, Nevada, and she is, is still alive and actually quite prominent in charity work. So she has this amazing career. How in the hell they talked her into being in this movie? I don't know. It's like, okay, here's the idea. We're going to give you a headdress that completely covers your beautiful black hair and put a stupid tiara on top of it. And on top of that, we're going to give you a costume that makes you look fat. How about that? Sounds good to you? Great. So, and of course, oh, and for Three Stooges fans, she was also in Spaceship Zappy as one of the Amazons, and she got to uh, tickle uh, Mo Howard's foot in that. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, she's been in all sorts of things, and yet for some strange reason, she agreed to be in uh, Frankenstein Meets the Space Monster. There's a good chance that this was actually her final film. I mean, she did some TV after that. She actually appeared in the Adam West Batman a couple of times, but uh, this appears to be the last film role. Well near the end, almost the last film role. And yeah. uh, I guess she was an in like Flint there, a small, small role there. But other than that, 
That's pretty much it, man. I don't know. I I would love to talk to her and see if she has any memories of working on this movie or if she's blocked it out. That's quite possible, <laughs> yes. Now, Nancy Marshall plays Karen Grant. She was only in two pictures. Uh, this and another one, and that was pretty much it. So some people went on to other things, and some people just sort of decided... Okay, this is just too depressing. I don't <laughs> so it can't be any better right? after this. Um, yeah. But now I, I, I want to get. I want to stress. I love this movie as much as I am kicking it right now. Um, I will watch it whenever I want to. I actually have most of it memorized because when it was on Doctor Paul Bear's Creature Feature, I actually take the audio track of it and listen to it constantly, which is uh, why I know so much of the dialogue because it's the kind of bad movie because the filmmakers themselves hate it and they can't understand why people like to watch it. I like to watch it because if it were just a little bit too much this way or that way, it would be unwatchable and terrible. But for some reason it's entertaining in the ways that they are doing things. Like for instance, for no reason whatsoever, we are treated to uh, the poet's, rendition of that's the way it's got to be as we are watching stock footage of an astronaut going into a mercury capsule and then hear it again <laughs> later on when the aliens are going after beautiful women also when they're in san juan and adam Steele and karen grant are uh, driving trying to find frank they suddenly decide they'll sightsee because that sense of urgency just has to be there and as it's going to create that sense of urgency, we hear, oh, 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 we'll walk in the rain if you really care to. We'll do everything that lovers do, two by two. <laughs> because nothing, <laughs> cause nothing says we have to find this robot before it kills again, like, to heaven to hold you, mine. <laughs> 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 oh, they liked this so much. Oh, they actually you know, the closing this movie, the way it was constructed, just it baffles me because I think you nailed it right there. If it, if it had gone one way or, or too far in either direction of the line that it's trying so hard to straddle between, you know, science fiction movie and is it a comedy? If they had gone either way too far, it wouldn't work. But there is something about this movie that makes me smile, that makes me laugh. Those long song sequences, this movie wouldn't work without it. And I love it. Uh, I, I wish I knew how to get a hold of the people who own the rights to those songs because I'd be playing the heck yeah. out of them in this episode. Uh, it's It's these weird musical interludes that almost make the movie yeah. even more enjoyable. Yeah, I know. Uh, in fact, every time I hear the poets, that's all I think about is Frankenstein meets the space monster. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Well, and, and even the bit at the very beginning where they're driving around, you know, there's a long driving sequence and there's four people piled into the back seat and it's kind of obvious that the general's sitting on the woman's lap. It's really odd. But even that sequence where they're driving and you, you see everything that they're passing, it's... It's interesting because all the businesses they're featuring are businesses that have like Cosmos, Astro, Lunar, you know, all these, these science fiction-y, space travel -y type names that, you know, would, would make sense, that would pop up in a town that is built around the space exploration industry. And, and I, even that's fun for me. 
Yeah, in fact, those maybe not those specific institutions, but I've been to Cocoa Beach, and they and they still have many businesses that have those astro and space and mm-hmm. all of that stuff. Um, in fact, I have seen Mission Control at NASA, and I've even touched a uh, tile from the uh, space shuttle. So yeah, that was oh kind wow, of, yeah. Well, you know, I, I toured the facilities. Not to get off base here, but if, uh, if you actually see Mission Control in person, it is really small. The only thing that makes it look so huge and command center-ish is that they use uh, cameras with practically fisheye lenses. So it makes it appear as though they're like this cavernous rooms with all of these equipment, but it's not like that at all. Uh, <laughs> in fact, the tour guide assured us, this is the actual thing. It's just that on television, it looks bigger. <laughs> so... <laughs> But yeah, I've actually been there and they still have those things to this day. Now, what's also charming about this is if you're a fan of something like, say, Underdog, um, <laughs> the the noise that comes out of Frank after he's been shot with the thing, that actually, you can hear that in Underdog episodes. So, so a lot of those sound effects, those needle drop sound effects have been used on Underdog and on Frankenstein Meets the Space Monster. So there's, there's that other connection to uh, 60s pop culture. <laughs> so apparently they actually did go to San Juan to shoot some of this stuff. <laughs> they had enough in the budget to do that. So apparently they didn't have enough in the budget to bring a sound man at one point because there are people that are meeting and, you know, you're not hearing them talk. <laughs> you're you're seeing them talk, but you you have the the you know the urgent music, but there's there's no actual dialogue going on. So I guess well, I guess what they're saying isn't that important that we need to know. <laughs> so. the, the, the the construction here, you know, where they don't, where you see them speaking but not hearing them. The music, the the sound effects. That I love that sound effect. I want that sound. That I want that on my cell phone. I don't know if I want it as a ringtone or I want it as an alarm clock, but I want that sound. There's just something about it that kind of brings me instantly to this movie, even though I hadn't watched it in a long time. The minute it happened, it's like, oh, yeah. And then I'm like, I'm right there. I'm committed now. You know, The movie I'm watching, okay. But when that sound effect hits, it brings me right there. Right. There's just something about it. Um, now, another interesting thing about this film is the spaceship. <laughs> or is one of the... Uh, the uh, Relay soldiers say, a spaceship? (laughs) (laughs) That's right, a spaceship. I can send the message, but I don't think they'll believe me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This is from Dr. Adam Steele, who has sighted a spaceship. I love the way he rolled his eyes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Almost as though he was really rolling his eyes up because he didn't believe he was actually going to say dialogue like that. But but the thing about the spaceship that I find interesting is it's, it's almost like a clown car. In that, in, it, it, like a TARDIS, it's it's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. And there it is. I was going to say, you went clown car. Come on, man. I'm talking to a Whovian. Yeah, it's the TARDIS. Now, Come on. <laughs> but, but when you see all the the girls coming out of the thing, and you're wondering how in the world they could all fit in there, and you, you're just trying to figure the angles and the stuff, and you know, it, it's just like, okay, this is a sexy clown car. <laughs> so, and they use a ladder. They use an, I think it's an actual, just a metal ladder that you would use to paint your house with. But uh, it's kind of effective the way that it takes off and lands because it obscures the thing in this big cloud of smoke. And then suddenly it clears and then it's there. So that was kind of interesting. And it's basically just like this ball with the 
skirting around it. And, you know, you know as spaceship designs go, it didn't match at all with the spaceship that we saw in the beginning, which I am almost convinced I saw in another movie, but I can't remember which one. It's at the very beginning where after you, you see the, the, the big uh, radar tower and you hear, and then you go up in the sky and then you hear that boom, <laughs> and you're seeing this like ball with electricity around it and, and i'm going wow this could be an ed wood movie if you, if you really tried hard enough <laughs> so, yeah it, it, yeah it's got that aesthetic it really does yeah i love the i love the dialogue too we continue to hear an ultra high frequency hydrogen relay of 21 centimeters princess what does that mean we're not quite certain princess <laughs> it's all gobbledygook to me <laughs> but it's definitely the same signal that we picked up since we left our planet by the way they never say they're martians the no they never mars, do the only time mars is mentioned is when frank saunders is saying where he's going so uh anytime you read a synopsis where they say they're martians they're not martians they just say from their planet and uh, I'm, I'm almost certain this is the dialogue that they added to make it more horrifying the lucky ones are dead of the others some will go mad. Others will slowly rot away and die in gradual agony. We won the war. It belongs to us. But we have no women. We need breeding stock to repopulate our planet. I'm almost thinking the it they're talking about is Mull the monster. Because otherwise, I can just imagine this whole advanced civilization fighting over who gets to have this monster for whatever purpose. Yeah. Well, otherwise what it, you know, the, the, it belongs to us, which means it's got to be there with them. And the only thing in there that seems out of place would be mulls. So I'm assuming, I mean, why will, why else would you have a, a monster in a cage when you're escaping a planet and you're trying to get away from mutants? There you go. Mull is the it yeah. that belongs to them. Don't ask me to explain why they were so hot to get it, but there it is. <laughs> yeah, they, they never say they're from Mars, mm -hmm. but it's, you know, when you hear that explanation, we're looking for breeding stock, of course my brain immediately goes to Mars needs women. Right, it's exactly the same plot. <laughs> it's exactly, yeah, you know, it's, pretty much. You know, they basically ripped off Mars Needs Women, which I think is why they call them Martians, because they're remembering that movie and then sticking it to this one. But right. uh, Now, Mars Needs Women didn't come out until two years after this movie, so maybe it was the other way around. But So basically, yeah. that Mars Needs Women stole it from there. Okay. Yeah, who knows? Um, <laughs> oh, you know, these B-movie makers, they don't care. <laughs> um, well, I mean, it's Larry Buchanan, so. Right. Now, the interesting thing about the sexy women in this are the men that they're with. Because I don't know if you notice it or not, there's this young, sexy woman on the beach in San Juan and she's in the waves and everything. And then there's this kind of dad bod dumpy guy in a hat who obviously is with her. And he has no expression on his face at all when she comes up and goes to dry off. He looks at his newspaper, then he kind of looks at her, then looks at the newspaper, and his expression never changes. And it seems to be like that with every man in this film. Like the same thing happened at the party. There's this beach party, or a pool party, rather, 
where the Martians come in and they blast the guys on a, a diving board and then they come and they take the women and then the guys are just sort of standing there without expressions on their face. It, it's just strange. It's like they got local people to do stuff and they don't know how to use their faces at all. But I do love the music that they have playing when the when the woman's in the surf. <laughs> It's part of the charm of this film is what what they finally pick for music for this thing. As a matter of fact, with the, the the scene where Frank I think has his first killing, uh, it's the car where the guy and the girl are driving, and then you hear on the radio, "If your lady wants a lolly, buy her one or even two. <laughs> Sit her in the back row, hold her all so tight. Have yourself a double feature at the moving picture show, and then." Frank shows up and then kills the guy and then the girl screams and I guess Frank finds that annoying because he just closes the car door and walks away. <laughs> <laughs> now, James Karen, you know, is probably the best actor here uh, oh, yeah. and it's obvious why he went on to have a career beyond this. He survived this movie and, and had a... David Kerman, who plays General Bowers, he has this one line, Get me Sinkland Fleet! God, that should be in a cartoon. <laughs> <laughs> every once in a while, he he reminded me of the mayor from Jaws. Just every oh. once in a while. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> this was his last movie too, wasn't it? I he didn't do a heck of a lot. Yeah, no, he didn't. Now the the two people that had the most careers were Marilyn mm-hmm. Hanel, who, who did a, a great modeling career, and James Cameron. Uh, now right. Lou Pertell did a lot of television. He was even on a couple of episodes of Seinfeld. So, oh, okay. Uh, I think it was when Seinfeld was in Florida, uh, visiting his father or somebody's father. And he was one of the father's friends. And at the time I really didn't associate this little person with Dr. Nadir. And it was only later on that, uh, that I put two and two together. He's had quite a good career as well. I mean, mostly bit parts and things like that, but I would really hate to think that Dr. Nadir is the Nadir of his career, but, uh, <laughs> he's still, I mean, he's still active as of a couple of years ago. So, I mean, he's still doing little bits here and there as like character parts, that sort of thing. But apparently this is not the only Frankenstein and name only Frankenstein movie he did. He also appears in Frankenstein general hospital from 1988. <laughs> I, I haven't seen it, but I I hope to God they he played a character named Doctor Nadir. <laughs> <laughs> that would be amazing. Yes. Be? Yes. Uh, yes, but yeah, I mean, he was in Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Even, I mean, he he oh, did a right, few yeah. other things, right? Yeah. So, I mean, he turned up in a handful of other things. Um, but yeah, James Karen obviously is the one who who went on and and is still active today as well. Uh, I, I would like to know more about Marilyn Hanold Hanold. Uh, just, just to know a little bit more about, like you said earlier, how did she get involved in this picture? Yeah, it would, it would be interesting to know. I mean, apparently the interiors were shot in Hempstead, New York. So Hempstead, Long Island. So it was actually shot in the very place that I was living at the time. Um, oh, wow. and, and apparently during one of the scenes where the monster is rampaging in the spaceship, and they're shooting from above, you actually see the uh, fluorescent lights of the office that they were apparently filming in 
in the ceiling rather than spaceship lights. They're fluorescent lights from an actual office corridor. So (laughs) (laughs) now if you look really carefully, and this is just a nerdy detail that I noticed. If you look at the control panel that's next to the cage where they stuck Karen to be molested by Maul for a while. If you look at that control panel, it's exactly the same control panel that Frank Saunders was next to when he was supposedly in the space capsule, just as Nadir was blowing up his ship. So apparently apparently just took a a chair, stuck it in there, got in for a close-up, put him in his spacesuit and helmet, and just shot away. Now, I have to describe how they are selecting the women, because... Because basically, it's like a fashion show, almost. They get all these women, they're all in bikinis and everything, and they already had the first woman who was by herself with her father, boyfriend, I don't know what the heck he was, but he got blasted and left bits of Los Alamos glass behind. Uh, Here's uh, the uh, princess, uh, Marek Huzan, saying, turn around, put your arms up, up higher, and then Dr. Nadir is going, (laughs) we have done well, Nadir. (laughs) Then they get all these other women, and then they get to uh, sit here, you know, sit and watch the uh, selection process, and where they basically put these women on uh, these trays, and then cover them with what looks like covering that you would find in a funeral home. (laughs) And they would either go one way or the other way, and if they went one way, you heard, ah! and heard the other way, you heard the machine go, <laughs> which I seem to recall <laughs> we kids in the audience thought was absolutely hilarious. <laughs> but now here's an interesting thing. In all my other movie going experiences at Marge's movie theater, I remember vividly how the audience was reacting to the film. Okay. I have very little memory of them. I think they were mostly laughing at this film, especially when the monster showed up. Now, you would think that when they uh, first mentioned Maul and then you're in that close-up and you hear the growling and he's sort of clawing at the camera and things like that, you would expect that everybody would be screaming their heads off. No, I remember them laughing their heads off rather than screaming because the, the costume... I guess was just just close to being too silly to be taken seriously. <laughs> so, and I think they had a mostly older audience, judging by the girl that was sitting next to me. So they were, you know, usually I was at the kitty matinee where we were full of seven or eight or nine year olds and much e- more easily terrified. But nobody was terrified at this movie. They were enjoying it. Oh, by the way, just so you know, in the poster, it says that you receive some sort of uh, ray shield to protect you from being uh, abducted by aliens. Nobody got these things. Ah. So Marge usually had all the kind, all the little accoutrements that went with everything. Like there, she had one with a, uh, a Western. So everybody got uh, uh, an Indian headdress to take with them and um, that sort of thing. But nothing like that was uh, available for this. So I have no idea what these ray shields looked like or anything, because I've never seen one in on eBay. I've never seen one depicted anywhere. I don't know if it's something that they said they were going to do, but then they didn't have the money to do it 
or whatever, but no. And I don't remember a second feature. I know it was supposed to be Curse of the Voodoo, but I don't remember seeing it. And I know I stayed for two runs of Frankenstein meets the space monster. Cause I wanted to see it from the very beginning. So that was my experience about that. And then of course, going into the end credits, once again, we're shown the, uh, basically the travel log of them driving around in their little scooter with the same music. Oh, 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 because after Frankenstein blows up in the spaceship and sacrifices himself, that seems to be the perfect way to end it. <laughs> yeah. It just so, ends. Yeah. Now, Right. Yeah. Now, um, this is just a theory on my part and from repeated viewings. I've got a strange feeling that Karen was doing her own research with Frank Saunders that went way above and beyond just simply tinkering them together because she seems to be awfully attached to him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there, there's something going on here. You know, say. So, because every once in a while, Adam Steele is a real earth thing. He's a robot, not a man, Karen. I know, but I realize that this is the wrong place. I'll talk later, Frank. Don't worry. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I'm thinking something was going on with these two. I don't yeah. know what. Which might have been part of the comedy that got cut out, but you never know. No, that's true. Uh, that's true. So. I mean, I picked up on that quite a bit. I mean, and I think anybody who watches this will pick up on that. So when... Uh, James Karen, when at, what was it, Adam Steele leaves Frank behind to keep an eye on that spaceship because Karen's inside there. I'm going to go get help. You knew eventually he was going to get in there and try to save her. I mean, it's just even if you know the aliens brought him in or whatever, and, and just her being near him, he was going to rise up and, and try to save her and, and sacrifice himself for her. Uh, well, look at the look on her face when she recognizes when she sees him on the table when they put you know he's unconscious and they put her on the table and that the look on her face is like I'm in love with him. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, here are a couple of things that I've noticed about her character. Number one, she is such a crybaby in this movie. I mean, all the other women who have been kidnapped by these aliens, they just sort of like accept the situation, you know going single file into the spaceship. But when Karen is, 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 is accosted by them, it's like, no, let me go. <laughs> Please let me go. <laughs> it's like, you're supposed to be the heroine of this thing, dear. There are bikini clad models who are doing better than you in this regard. <laughs> yeah. And then for some peculiar reason that I do not understand, except just to put her in the same, you know, cage next to Frank, uh, next to the space monster. Early on, we see that there's some kind of a control device that operates Frank, which I'm sure Karen can tell you all about. <laughs> but they find, if, if Dr. Nadir, is, you know, the, uh, Bruce Glover's alien hands it to them. And then, of course, when they said this big musical thing, <laughs> this is a highly sophisticated device for this society. And so they ask her what it is. So what harm would it have done to simply say, well, it's a device for controlling our Astro robot, which you damaged earlier or something like that, or it's a transistor radio. You could just say anything. Instead, she says absolutely nothing so that they can then torture her by putting her in a cage next to the alien monster, which, who, by the way, seems to be having way too much fun groping her. So, yeah. Uh, 
Um, so that's really, you know, it's like, why are you putting yourself through this? Just tell them anything. They will believe it. Yeah. <laughs> and also you wonder, how does this thing actually work? Because there's no like dials or switches or anything on it. It's just a cube with what looks like an antenna sticking out of it, but nothing to actually operate anything. Well, Dr. Nadir recognizes it right away as something important. The the reaction, I mean, there's no, hmm, what's this? The minute he sees that, what is this? Go get her right now. This, this is a media boom. <laughs> you know, yeah. he's like, well, okay. <laughs> Although at this point, he has been kind of put in his place because when he's blowing up the quote-unquote missiles and they realize that they're not missiles, there's men on board. They're they're just vehicles, you idiot. You know, just... Mm-hmm. So who knows? They have people on their missiles? <laughs> okay, let's, get, let's wait for the dime to drop. They're spaceships! <laughs> so, yes. yeah, yeah it, 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 it's kind of interesting, the thought processes that go into being a princess of a lost civilization. Uh, then, of course, finally, we have the, the final titanic fight between Frank and the space monster, which you can barely see because there is so much smoke going on, mm-hmm. which I'm assuming is to obliterate the fact that they're actually out in the hallway of the offices of Futurama Productions rather than in a studio. Now, <laughs> you know, why they couldn't have shot this in the corridors that they built for this spaceship, which we have seen like five times, uh, I don't know, unless they just couldn't get the actors in there to fit, to fight, so they decided to do it in the hallway and put in a lot of smoke. And at one point, Robert Riley is grabbing Bruce Glover's head, and you can see the mask slip, so that the edge of the mask just slipped over the costume, the chest, you know, the back costume. And the monster is kind of a goofy, sort of Martian-y, pointed ears, with a skull and these kind of ping pong ball eyes and jaggedy teeth, which look completely impractical and these arms that's and these fingers that sort of look like carrots. At the end of the the series, I don't know how they got away with the title operation San Juan. When the first, when the opening credits show this shadow of the monster coming towards you and Knowing how shadows actually work, it's actually backing away, you know, towards the light source so that it gets bigger. Um, but uh, and such and such a desperate opening theme. That you think you're going to be seeing some really horror thing here going on, and then suddenly you see the spaceship. I loved the music too. I was like, man, I wish this was available on CD. I, I would I'd play the heck out of that. I love that opening bit of music. And then, yeah, <laughs> it doesn't quite fit. Yeah. But, um, but like I say, somehow, and of course, uh, oh, and of course, the most important thing, the ray guns that are being used by the Martians are whammo uh, air guns which you also see in another film that has to do with Mars, Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. You, you see those ray guns again. They put a flashbulb in there or something to, to light up. Um, but yeah, so Frank, uh, after, 
I guess he wins. I mean, you you don't know really. No, the monster actually comes up out of the thing. Yeah. Uh, so he get, he breaks away from the monster. He goes into the control room and he blows it up with this one ray gun. Where every you know where at one point he shoots it and there's this big flash and then there's smoke and I think if I'm remembering reading the liner notes I, I think that that uh, ceiling that comes down actually conked either Marilyn Hanold or or Lou Cartel in the head when it actually when it came down <laughs> so it is kind it's quite possible that. They weren't acting. They might have been actually knocked out by that thing. I love how the, the, the film flips, so suddenly it's upside down and then right side up again, and then you just see this stock footage explosion, and then you see Karen crying into Adam Steele's shoulder because I guess she lost her robot boyfriend. <laughs> and again, that woman, she she almost shows no interest whatsoever in Adam Steele, but she is a thing for Frank. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so it sounds like we might be like you said earlier. We're kicking this movie a, a lot, but it's it's a lot of fun. It's it's so much fun to just kind of kick back and check out and watch this thing and see, despite all the things here that we're we're kind of commenting on and maybe even sound critical about. Listeners, please don't take away from this that we don't enjoy this movie. I enjoyed the heck out of watching this yesterday. I actually intended to uh, be working on something else while I was watching this because I'd seen the movie before, you know, I was familiar with it. And I just kept finding myself getting distracted by what was happening on the screen because I couldn't help but watch. Yeah, it does what it sets out to do. It is very entertaining. Now, yes. uh, like, like I say, the, the makers of this film hate it and don't understand why it has such a big cult following. Like I say, it influenced me to wander around a playground with half my face covered with silver paper with peanut butter on it. So, you know, that's <laughs> got to tell you something. Um, I actually, I took my G.I. Joe and I made a Frank Saunders figure out of it because I had the space suit. Oh, wow. From one of the G.I. Joe sets. Oh, wow. So I just simply took some aluminum foil and I put it on half of his face. Frank! <laughs> so, yeah, no, I, I love it. I love the heck out of this movie. Even the kids in the audience, we were not bored. No one threw popcorn at the screen. We laughed our heads off. I mean, it was just a it was just a fun time at the movies. I really, I really uh, do think that uh, I will pop this in any day and watch it and not be the least bit bored. And it also. And it might also have to do with the fact that I have a lot of nostalgia about it because I remember the time in which it took place and, you know, and I saw it in the theater and, you know, you're never bored with Frankenstein meets the space monster because something is always happening. And some of the stuff that's happening, you don't even believe is happening at the time. <laughs> but um, I love it all. I love the cave that Frank is in. I, I where. I, I think they just used the same shot over and over again with him coming out of the cave and going back into the cave and, and all of that and the locations. Also the, the fun stuff where Adam Steele trying to get this guy to, at this, I guess, coffee shack or something to give him a phone, a telephone. Hello. Hello. Telephone. Oh, telephone. Oh, that's right. Thank you. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's just fun stuff. It's not boring. 
even though it's a Frankenstein movie in that at the end credits, they call him Colonel Frank Saunders slash Frankenstein. Uh, director Robert Gaffney, even though he disparages this film greatly, I, I think he did a good job with what he was given. I mean, I've never seen a movie that used so much stock footage so effectively in my life. It's, it's just a fun film. Give me Sinkland Fleet. I mean, <laughs> you gotta, you gotta love it. It's a lot of fun. Even the musical numbers, they're almost constructed like rudimentary uh, music video in, in spots. And, you know, that's just enough to kind of keep things interesting. It just really works uh, on a number of different levels. And I know we're only like halfway through January at this point, but this is one of the most fun times I've had watching a movie this year. <laughs> I don't know what that says, actually, yeah. but no, this is pretty amazing. I like how that's the way it's got to be is not only background music, but is also source music because that's what they're playing at the pool. Exactly. Party. Yeah. <laughs> so I, w I wonder how much the poets paid these people to play this over and over again, because <laughs> that single must have hit the charts, something fierce. As a matter of fact, I actually came up on YouTube. I don't know if I think it's the actual poets that, um, you know, not like now, it's either the poets or they're a uh, uh, cover band, tribute band. Yeah, it's either a tribute band, but I think it's them. Uh, and they say that they're going to play. That's the way it's got to be, and the audience goes nuts. <laughs> so, how many of the people in that audience actually saw uh, Frankenstein meets the Space Monster and just associates it with that with that movie? Because I've listened to some of their other music, and it's not as good as that's the way it's got to be. <laughs> so. It's so popular, I was actually able to go on the internet because I can't understand the lyrics half the time. And I will actually read you the opening lyrics because you cannot understand them. Okay. You may live for, you may live for me today, then tomorrow go away. There will be no tears from me. That's the way it's got to be. That's the way it's got to be. So, yeah, if you want to look it up, Genius.com actually has the lyrics, the whole lyrics to That's the Way It's Got to Be. There you go. <laughs> that's the way it's got to be there, mama. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. You know, the movie, it, the movie was written by a poet laureate of the state of Virginia. The guy taught creative writing, uh, George Garrett's his name. He taught at the University of Virginia. Um <laughs> Come on! You just—how did this happen? I don't know. I could just imagine he's on a porch, sipping a mint julep, and he's going, "You know what? I've never really tried to write before. Tried to write a love story about a woman in love with a robot, and having aliens coming from outer space to get our women. <laughs> I think I might do that." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the other people involved with the writing, uncredited, were R. H. W. Dillard and John Roddenbeck. So uh, they all uh, tr uh, contributed a story element to it in one way or the other. And so there you are. Monster Kid Radio has presented to you in its entirety 
with no worries about spoilers because you cannot spoil this movie. Yeah, I don't think there's really a way. Yeah. There, there's not a way to spoil this movie because just simply describing it is not the experience of actually watching it. I will encourage you all out there in podcast land to buy the DVD, whatever, of, or as the poet laureate would have called it, Frankenstein meets the space monster. <laughs> Again, big thanks to Dwight Kempfer for being part of the show this week, for being part of the Monster Kid Radio Irregulars, and coming on to talk about Frankenstein Meets the Space Monster. A couple of things. First of all, MurderMysteryTheater.com. That's where you're going to find out about Dwight's murder mystery productions. Check those out. And of course, over in the show notes, I'll make sure there's a link to this as well. In fact, if you go to MonsterKidRadio.net and look at the show notes for this episode, you'll also find buttons that'll take you to Amazon to buy his novels and they're fantastic highly recommend them and if you are going to buy them please consider using these links to do so because we get like 50 cents as an affiliate you know 50 cents that may be generous actually i don't anyway dwight is awesome and i'm looking forward to seeing him again in person at the monster bash this year because he will be there as well Uh, a couple of things about the conversation here again i want to stress dwight and i love this movie It's a lot of fun. So I hope you take away from our conversation at least that. And secondly, I know a couple of times he and I both slipped and referred to actor James Karen as James Cameron. Um, You know, it's Karen. We, we, We know. We know. Behind this gate, cut off world of reality lurks a world of madness a world filled with brutality a world of frankensteins dr frankenstein maker of monsters creates the most monstrous nightmare of all only the most insane mind could give birth to it Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell. Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell from Paramount Pictures. Rated R. Under 17, not admitted without parent. Hey, comic book fans, I'm Joe Stuber, producer and host of Comic Book Central, where each and every week I welcome a legendary talent to the Comic Book Central lair to talk about bringing comic books to life. Greetings, true believers. This is Stan Lee. When do you think the Academy is going to wise up and create a special Oscar category for best cameo? I don't know. They're just asleep on their feet. Maybe your show, maybe this interview will be the turning point. Hi, this is Jamie Alexander, the Asgardian warrior Sith from Thor. I went to Marvel. They said, hey, sit down. We want to talk to you about this part. So what happened was I had a knife in my purse. I set the purse on the chair and it fell off and the knife fell out. And then they were like, oh, God, you really are Lady Sith. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the one, the only, William Shatner. There's all these rumors out there that you're going to be in the next Star Trek film. Well, I'd like to be in it. You know, I don't want to be a gratuitous character. Like scrubbing the windows on the Enterprise or something? There's a guy on the wing. Chris Pine! There's a guy on the wing. Chris Pine says, there's a guy on the wing. (laughs) 
Catch the very latest episodes at the website, comicbookcentral.net. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, like it on Facebook, follow it on Twitter, and be sure to join me each and every week for Comic Book Central. This is John Reese davis Hi, everyone. This is Summer Glau. Hi, this is Trisha Helfer, number six from Battlestar Galactica. Hey, this is Dean Kane, Superman from Lois and Clark, and you're listening to Comic Book Central. Where comic books come to life. Excelsior. <laughs> The message is, Mars needs women. These were the words that startled the world. This was the reason for an invasion that shocked the Earth. Martians, beings from outer space, with one prime objective. Women, Earth women, to help repopulate their dying planet, to bring new blood to an ancient civilization. Beauty and the beasts. Only the beasts were men. Martian men. Every woman checked and double-checked. Only the most perfect. The most beautiful. Is Earth to be ravished because Mars needs women? Picking up where we left off last week, Frankenstein was adapted for the stage numerous times over the years. In fact, it even happened not too long ago with Benedict Cumberbatch performing on stage in a version of Frankenstein. It seems like Frankenstein was a favorite of many playwrights and playgoers. But it wouldn't take long for it to start hitting the silver screen. And the first time that happened was in 1910, courtesy of Thomas Edison's studio. Uh, If you know a lot about your silent film history, Thomas Edison was one of the big players, one of the big dogs when it came to silent film. In fact, he claimed the patent to the technology to produce, exhibit, and distribute the films. One of the films that he had produced was the first film adaptation of the Mary Shelley story. It began production in 1909 and was overseen by J. Searle Dolly. Dolly was a director and screenwriter. He did a lot of work on the stage as well as behind the camera for the burgeoning film industry. In fact, he often referred to himself as the first real film director because up until he came around, a lot of times the cameraman was kind of in charge of things. Dolly really took control and established the director as the one kind of in charge of everything. One of his first films was Rescued from an Eagle's Nest, which is notable because it's one of, I believe, only two films in which director D.W. Griffith actually appears as an actor. D.W. Griffith, of course, is legendary and, and so important when it comes to the history of cinema, but we're talking about Frankenstein here. Let's get back to Frankenstein. Dolly wrote the screenplay, Dolly produced, directed, and I don't know if he was responsible for the casting, but if he was, we have him to thank for Charles Ogle taking on the role of the monster. Now, to be fair, every version of this 1910 Frankenstein that I've seen, it's really hard to make out a lot of the details. You have to keep in mind that back then, 
close-ups were very rare, if not non-existent. Griffith is credited a lot of times with creating or at least incorporating a lot of close-ups in silent cinema. But for a time at the beginning of cinema history, a lot of these movies were shot as if they were plays, stationary cameras, long shots featuring the character's entire body. And because films degrade over time, especially some of these older movies that were stored on nitrate, we don't see a lot of the details. And it is unfortunate. However, the Edison Kinetogram, which was basically a sales program that the Edison Studios would send out to distributors, did feature a photo of Ogle in the monster makeup. And then that has been circulated in various books, magazines, Famous Monsters has run it. So if you want to know what the monster looked like, just look that up online. You'll find it. In fact, Frankenstein, the 1910 version, does have its own Wikipedia entry, and you can see the cover of the Edison Kinetogram film catalog, as well as a closer shot of the monster himself. Ogle really is the, the known actor here, at least now, as the person who's important when it comes to this film. But obviously, he's not the only person in the movie. We do have a Dr. Frankenstein, played by Augustus Phillips. We have a fiancé, played by Mary Fuller. Mary Fuller would be, uh, for a very short period of time, almost as popular as like a Lillian Gish, but her career didn't last nearly as long. She actually suffered from a couple of nervous breakdowns and never fully recovered uh, by the time the second one hit in 1940. It was just pretty much a end for her, unfortunately. It's unfortunate that their work gets overshadowed by, I don't want to say the novelty, but the importance of Charles Ogle and what he did and what he brought. It's believed that he designed his own makeup as the monster. It's kind of hard to tell because these kinds of things weren't really documented back then. In fact, most of the time, these films and all this related material were returned back to the studio, destroyed, the silver reclaimed, and used for future film projects. And because of that, for a very long time, this version of Frankenstein was believed to have been lost. It actually made a bunch of lists about some of the most culturally important films that are considered lost. Well, in 1963, it resurfaced. Kind of. You see, in 1963, the Edison Kinetogram that I mentioned earlier with the picture of Charles Ogle started making the rounds again. It got discovered. I'm not really sure if it was lost. Every bit of research that I found talks about it being discovered again by a film historian. And then it started getting circulated. And a lot of people, like the American Film Institute, really wanted to see the movie. However, nobody could find one. However, somebody did come forward and say that he had a copy. This person was somebody known, well, I'm going to call him Father Time because that's what he called himself when he would dress up in a white sheet and a tri-cornered hat with a hourglass hanging around his neck and march in his town's parades. This man was a guy by the name of Alois F. Detlaff Sr. Al Detlaff Sr. actually had a print of this. Originally, this print belonged to his wife's grandmother who used to show it as well as other silent movies as part of a stage show and now his wife's grandmother eventually left the show business and passed her projector and film collection down to her son who then passed it on to his son who happened to be Detlef's brother-in-law now Detlef's brother-in-law had no idea what he had and just sold the entire package to a collector who then sold it to another collector who knew Detlef who then purchased them back in the mid-1950s he'd been running the silent films he loved silent movies he did not like modern films but he loved the silent films. Now, he did view Frankenstein and reportedly noticed that there were some wear and tear on it, so he just kind of placed the print aside and just didn't want to do much with it because he was worried that it might get more damaged. 
not really sure if he knew at that point what he had. However, when he found out that the AFI was looking for it, he came out and said, I've got it. And he knew it was an important film at that point. Because of this, and because it was the only known copy to exist, he was really hesitant to kind of let it out. He let some clips be seen on the BBC in the 70s, but other than that, he really kind of held it close to his chest. And I get it, but, you know, it's Frankenstein. It's culturally important. And he did end up working with the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts, and Sciences to get a copy of it out to some places. But there was this obstructive copyright notice put on the film. Now, the movie's from 1910. It's in the public domain. However, the physical media on which it was stored, the film itself was clearly owned by Detlef, so I don't know where the copyright really lands here. And I do understand wanting to be compensated for having something, especially a treasure. I mean, if you can make a couple of dollars, great, but yeah, it's really kind of hard to, to see where that lands and, and to put your mind in the headspace of Detlef, especially at the time. Now in 75, a copy of the film was made and my understanding is that a 35 millimeter print does exist of this in some libraries now. Now, when the copy started going out and Detlef was not getting the money uh, that he thought he deserved or the recognition that he thought he deserved, obviously some hard feelings. And it's unfortunate, you know, again, uh, without him, we wouldn't have Frankenstein. But on the other hand, you've got Frankenstein. Let people see it, you know. Now, I first learned about this whole Detlef thing, the saga here, not online, not in what is one of the best books I've read on the subject, Edison's Frankenstein by Frederick C. Weeble Jr. What the heck, I'll make sure there's a link to this in the show notes. I actually found out about this by reading a book called Aftermath Inc. Cleaning Up After CSI Goes Home. This is a 2007 book written by Gil Reville, and it's exactly what it sounds like. It's what a certain company called Aftermath Inc., goes through when cleaning up scenes of, well, death, where people have been killed or people have died from natural causes, that sort of thing. And there's an entire chapter in this book just called Father Time, and it's all about them going out and cleaning up the house of Detlef. What's interesting about this book is that the author really kind of dives into the behind the scenes, not necessarily this is how they clean the house. Step one, do this. Step two, do that. I mean, there is some of that, but there's also the more human element. And we learn about the people who have passed on. And that's why I learned about him dressing up as Father Time and marching in his town's parades and that sort of thing. Apparently, he did carry a scythe as well as Father Time, which is a little scary. But, you know, anyway, uh, he loved his silent movies. And if you came over to his house and he said, you want to watch a movie? And you said, no, he thought you were dumb. And that was about it. You wouldn't get to hang out with him anymore. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, he loved his silent movies and he had this print of Frankenstein sitting around. His daughter lived across the street from him. And she used to come over all the time to help him out, but they were really kind of becoming uh, codependent on one another and had some other things going on. And she stopped coming over and then he passed. I don't know if this ever came to be, but in this story in Aftermath Inc., his daughter does say that she would love to get her hands on the film can that Frankenstein 1910 had been kept in for so long because Detlef loved that film. He didn't talk about it too much because he didn't want people to know what he had once he realized what he himself had. But he did talk about it a lot with family, and she wanted to have his cremated remains buried in that film canister. I certainly hope that happened. 
I mean, if that's what he wanted, if that's what she wanted, whatever the family wanted to kind of move on and make this as representative of his interests and life as possible. Anyway, it's a fascinating read. It's very short. It doesn't get too into depth with the history of it. You have to go elsewhere for that, like the other book that I mentioned. And now you can see the film all over. It's all over YouTube, archive.org. Vimeo, I'm sure, has it. Amazon lets you watch it for $2.99, although I don't know the quality of the transfer. I don't know how it looks. Uh, the version of the movie that I watched earlier today, the YouTuber said that it was restored, but it actually looked a little bit worse than other copies that I've seen of the film. You can see it. It's it's all over the place. And if you just look up Frankenstein 1910 on the internet, you can find a picture of Ogle in the makeup. And it's really fascinating. It's nothing like what Karloff looked like. And it's nothing like what was described as being on the stage in the stage production that I talked about last week. He's got big, obscene-looking feet, twisted, wild hair. The proportions of his body just don't look right. In the late 1990s, early 2000s, there was a toy company called Aztec, A-Z-T-E-C-H. They eventually changed their name to Mezco, so you might know them as that, but they had a line of action figures called the Silent Screamers Collection, and in this set, you could get the robot from Metropolis, the original Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Nosferatu, and Nock. You get characters from the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, uh, the Gollum, which I still have, and you could get a version of the 1910 Frankenstein. It's an exaggerated figure, but some of the basics are still there, like the feet, like the disproportional body, the oddly shaped limbs. He doesn't have the crazy hair that Charles Ogle had, but you know, he's Frankenstein enough, I guess. And if you do see the figure or pick it up for yourself, the artwork on the card was done by Alex Ross. Charles Ogle's name is still in use today. The Mark Time Awards, which is an awards program that give recognition to the best audio theater productions in sci-fi, fantasy, horror, and mystery. They have an award they call the Ogle Award. The Charles Ogle Award is given annually for the best in fantasy and horror audio theater. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes to past Ogle Award winners. I'd love to hear some of these things including, and if anybody's got a lead on this, I'd love to you know, hear it. In 1999, the award went to a production called Back to Frankenstein by Davis Radio Theater, produced and written by Les Light for the University of California. Again, if anybody knows where to hear this, let me know. Huh? Next week, we're going to talk about the big one, the one that everybody thinks of when we think about Frankenstein, when we think about Frankenstein on the big screen, we think Boris Karloff. We're going to talk about the first Frankenstein film from Universal next time around. the dead 
entombed for 200 years that creeps its way back to terrorize the living. The terrifying horror of a dreaded man called Dr. Terror who, with his deck of mystic cards, could foretell destiny. Dr. Terror's House of Horrors. If you think all vampires are ugly creatures of the night, then you are in for a shattering surprise. Lust for a vampire. Disciples of the Black Mass, devils in female bodies, whose embrace is the kiss of death for man or woman. Lust for a vampire. Released by American Continental Films in color. Rated R. Thank you for listening to the show this week. I appreciate you making me part of your audio diet this time around. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I know I had a lot of fun producing it and editing it. I love chatting with Monster Kids, fellow Monster Kids, fellow creatives, and Dwight and I actually talked for about an extra half hour uh, after we got done recording, and it was just you know it's just fun to chat and it makes for a pleasant experience editing it. I hope it was a pleasant experience for you listening to it. So again, thanks to Dwight and thanks to you for being part of the show, man. I I just appreciate it. And I can't wait to see you again at Monster Bash. Thank you listeners for being part of the show and downloading this show. I appreciate all of your support, all of your reviews on iTunes, liking the page on Facebook, joining the Facebook group, retweeting tweets. I'm starting to get more involved in Twitter again. Just I love having the interaction and knowing that you guys and gals are helping me grow my internet imprint, my internet footprint with Monster Kid Radio. It means a heck of a lot. Of course, you can find everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio at our website. That's monsterkidradio.net. Again, you'll find our contact information there. Voicemail line is 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. You can also send me an email at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. And again, there are links to everything that we talk about in the show notes. There's also a place for you to buy your copies of Dwight's books and any other things that I mentioned here on the show. I'll make sure there's links there. So if you are interested in picking any of these up, please consider using the link from the show notes because again, we get just a tiny bit of scratch back on that and that helps support the show. Also, big thanks to everybody who's been helping the show through Patreon. means a lot to me to know that you guys and gals are backing me up there as well. What's coming up on Monster Kid Radio? Well, you know, I mentioned this at the top of the show. I'm going to mention it again. We are starting to push into YouTube. And in fact, we do have a YouTube page. Just go look up Monster Kid Radio. What's there right now? Well, not much, but that's going to change over the next couple of weeks. To make sure that you're in on the ground floor, head over there and subscribe. I really appreciate it. You know, YouTube has recently just changed how they do some of their YouTube partnership programs and that sort of thing. And to be involved in these programs, you need to have a thousand subscribers and like 4,000 hours of viewed content. Now, I don't have enough to warrant 4,000 hours of viewed content yet. And I certainly don't have enough subscribers yet, but eventually I'd like to become a YouTube partner. Once we get the video started to get in on that from the beginning, please head over there and subscribe to the YouTube channel. And remember, if you have a Roku, there is a YouTube app for that. And of course, iPhones and Androids have YouTube as well. What's happening in the immediate future though? Well, next week, let's talk about episode 354. I've got two Michaels joining me, and I might actually use my middle name next week, so I feel like I'm fitting in. My middle name's also Michael. So next week, two and a half Michaels, Michael H. Price and Michael Ledgy are coming by. Michael Ledgy is the persona taken on by Dr. Drek. Or is it the other way around? 
Yeah, either way. And Michael H. Price, you might know his name if you are familiar with the Forgotten Horrors books. Forgotten Horrors, it's a wonderful series, a really cool podcast, and Michael H. Price is a really cool guy. He's going to be coming to the show next week as well. So come back for that. Also, big thanks to the band, the Delstroyers. Appreciate them letting us use their music on the show again. I love the new album, Diabolical. I think you'll love it too. And if you want to see them live, they've got two events coming up next month. On February 3rd, they are playing at Winter Surf Fest 2018. That's in Huntington Beach at Surf Dogs Sports Grill. And then on February 17th in Seattle, they're going to be playing at the Slim's Last Chance Saloon as part of the Savage Beat at Slim's. Of course, you can check out these events on their Facebook page at The Destroyers and let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. If you can't see them live, of course, you can always pick up their album, which you can find at thedelstroyers.bandcamp.com. You can pick up the digital album for $7. That's one heck of a deal for a heck of a lineup of surf tracks, and uh, the music's just great. So big thanks to them for letting us play them here on the show. Until next week, remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Cryptomatic. That belongs to the aforementioned The Delstroyers. You can find it on their album Diabolical. Again, it's thedelstroyers.bandcamp.com. Talk to everybody next week. My name is Sarah Kim Cook. Ciao. (laughs) 